Good morning. If you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, please do. We'll be reading today from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Amen. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we pray together to open our time together there this morning. God, we, uh, we ask that you would dwell with us in this place by your grace, that you would be at work in us this morning as we consider these words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that you would open our minds to think deeply about the truths that are presented here and to consider how they change our lives. We marvel at your grace, and we implore you this morning to continue to do your gracious work in our midst today. And we ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Sometimes, I think, the most valuable, prized possessions that we have are things that other people do not find all that valuable. That is certainly true in my case. My most prized possession is a 1987 Jeep Cherokee with over 300,000 miles on it, a leaky roof, peeling paint, and no stereo. My dad bought it the year after I was born, and I remember driving around with him in it all over the country with him and my brothers. Later, after it had been sitting unused behind his house for several years, he gave it to me. Over the next few years, I took it apart and put it back together, fixing whatever I could find that was broken. I replaced, among other things, intake and exhaust manifolds, the head gasket, fuel injectors, the clutch, brakes, exhaust, and even put a rebuilt engine in it. But I never, fix, I never fixed the peeling paint or the leaky roof. So now, even though it is still as ugly as ever, it runs like a champ. When we moved to Massachusetts six years ago, I couldn't bring it with me, and so I left it at my parents' house in Colorado, and every time that we go back home now, I take it for a spin around the neighborhood. <clears throat> it is definitely, I'm willing to admit, it is definitely an unsafe, rattling eyesore, but it is my unsafe, rattling eyesore, and I love it. I love it because of all the childhood memories that I associate with it, and also because as I spent years working on it, I learned a lot about it, and that made me love it even more. Up to the point in my life that my dad gave it to me, I didn't know much about how cars work. 
All I knew was that you, you get in, you turn the key, you push the gas pedal, and it goes. But when I got under the hood of that 1987 Jeep Cherokee, I began to understand what up to that point had really only been a mystery to me. I learned about all the pieces and parts and how they fit together and what they do and why, when they're all together, it works. I learned to appreciate it in a way that I hadn't before. And now, I'm the proud owner of an old rattling death trap that I look forward to driving every chance that I can. The same thing happens, or a similar thing happens, in our relationship with Christ. On the first day of faith, we came to understand the core of the gospel, that we are sinners saved by grace. But the longer that we follow Christ and the more that we learn about who we are and who He is and about the magnificent love that sets us free from sin and condemnation, the more we appreciate and enjoy Him. It is true and wonderful that God does not demand us to be theologians. It's something to celebrate that Christ told His disciples that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. There is no pop quiz, no seminary exam that we must pass to get into heaven. What we must know is that we are sinners, that He is merciful to us, that Christ's death and resurrection are the way that God has made for us to enjoy the goodness of His presence forever. But it's also true that the more we learn and the deeper we go in thinking about and examining and understanding the gospel, the more we will marvel at it and rejoice in it. When we get under the hood and take things apart and learn about how the doctrines of orthodoxy function and fit together, the more we will love and rest in the gospel. I'm convinced that God's desire for us is to have joy in Him, and that that joy, that deep, abiding thrilling joy comes about as the result of learning doctrine and theology. Sometimes we look at the gospel like we look at the cars that brought us to church this morning. We get in, we turn the key, or perhaps in your case, push a button, and then we push the gas pedal and go. We know that there's something interesting going on, and maybe we even know some of the terminology involved. We've heard words like transmission and clutch and differential, and we know that gasoline is involved somehow. And when we put it all together, it works, and it brings us where we need to go. The same can be true of how we view the gospel. Perhaps we've heard words like atonement, substitution, and grace, and we know that somehow when you put all these things together, the gospel works. It goes. It takes us where we need to go. It saves by faith. But if we take some time to dig deeper and to ask deep questions and to think about how the gospel works, we will be rewarded with the comfort and joy of knowing Christ's love for us more deeply than we did before. The passage that we're looking at this morning from 2 Corinthians 5 helps us get under the hood. It helps us both to form good questions about how the gospel works, and it also begins to reveal the mechanisms involved, specifically in the doctrines of regeneration, reconciliation, and imputation. Those are fancy words, but I'm asking you to come along with me as we examine these theological terms so that we will be rewarded with affection for Christ and comfort in His presence and a trust in the gospel that comes with learning these doctrines. 
These are words that are often relegated to theology classrooms and thick books. But I think it's worth taking the time to learn them. Because when we do, we discover greater and deeper satisfaction with Christ than we knew before. Paul begins with the end result of the gospel in verses 16 and 17. Begins with the end. He says, there, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. We saw last week, if you were here with us, in the previous passage from 2 Corinthians 5, that the gospel changes everything, that it transforms everything. And Paul points to his own transformation as evidence both of the gospel's trustworthiness and its transforming power. And now, Paul is making the point that because that is true, we look at the world differently, we live in the world differently than we did before. We regard no one according to the flesh, he says. Or another way to translate what Paul is saying here might be, we judge no one based on outward appearance. He's speaking directly to Corinthian culture here. Paul has spent a lot of time making this point in this letter, and he's not done yet because the Corinthians are obsessed with outward appearances, as we've seen over and over again, and we'll continue to see as we continue to walk through the book of 2 Corinthians. They sized one another up based on things like material wealth, clothing, and social standing, and status. Paul is saying that those standards mean nothing now. He illustrates that point, again, through his own experience, the way that he has begun to see things differently because of the gospel. We used to regard Christ according to the flesh, he says. Paul looked at Jesus at one time, sized him up, and determined that he was a liar or a lunatic or both. In his former life, before he came to know Christ, Paul saw Jesus and saw only a blasphemer. And when Jesus was crucified, Paul felt even more sure because he knew the Scripture that declares that anyone who is hung on a tree is under the curse of God, and Jesus was crucified on a wooden cross and therefore was under the curse of God. So he was confident, so confident that he was determined to silence the entire movement of Jesus' followers. Paul was a man on a mission to imprison or kill anyone who followed Jesus until Jesus himself confronted Paul and changed everything. In a moment of blinding light, Paul went from being the church's persecutor to its most humble servant. He went from seeing Jesus as a sacrilegious false teacher to the Son of God made flesh and crucified for Paul's own sin. He describes that transformation in this passage, saying that he became not just a follower of Christ, but one who is in Christ, whose whole identity and existence are wrapped up in the existence and identity of Jesus Christ, and one who is, because of Christ, a new creation. The scales fell off his eyes, and he began to look at the whole world differently than he had before. The language that Paul is using in this passage seems to be drawing on the Old Testament and specifically the book of Isaiah. Most scholars think that he probably had Isaiah in mind as he wrote this passage. 
In that book, God confronted his people, the people of Israel, in the midst of their own sin, just as he had with Paul. He condemned them for all that they had done, for generations of idolatry, corruption, selfishness, and even wicked practices that had, that had come to be a part of uh, the Israelite culture, like child sacrifice. He tells them that he will answer their sin, and that within a few years, he would raise up armies from faraway nations to come and overrun the cities of Israel and Judah, that he would send his people into exile as captives of vast empires, and that he would cause his people to suffer because they have abandoned the law and faithfulness to God. But then he says, a day will come when I will bring you home, when I will show you mercy and deliver you, when I will make new what has been corrupted by your sin and restore you. And in one of the very highest points of the book of Isaiah, in his promise at the very end of the book, in chapter 65, God says, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. For the ancient Israelites, on the verge of destruction and exile, those, those words gave hope of a future day over a distant horizon that they could not see yet. For Paul and all those in Christ, they are a promise kept. God's Son has come. He has died and conquered death for the sake of His people, Paul says in verse 15. And that points to the promise that God has begun to fulfill to make all things new. In His resurrection, Christ has begun to set all things right. And in the life of His people, this is the doctrine of regeneration. The moment a person, by the work of the Holy Spirit, turns toward God rather than away from Him, when lifeless hearts of stone begin to beat with a longing for the glory of God. It is a transformation that takes place within a person's heart and is the reason that Paul is concerned not with outward appearances like, this, or like social status or, or wealth like the Corinthians are, because it's an inward transformation. It's hard to think of a better example of the, the doctrine of regeneration playing itself out than in Paul's own life. In grace, God had met sinners in the midst of their sin, calling them to new life and then bringing it about. That is what he did in Paul's own life. It's what Jesus was talking about in John 3 when he told the Pharisee Nicodemus that he must be born again to a whole new beginning, a whole new life. We sometimes think of becoming a Christian like building an addition on a house. That addition may add space, square footage to your house. It might change the flow of your house or make it more comfortable or functional. But when you add an addition to your house, it's not a new house. It's the same house with a new feature. The doctrine of regeneration teaches us that God does not give us a new feature when He brings us to faith. He makes us new people. Nothing old remains. Every brick is torn down the foundation uprooted, and something new is built in its place. The 19th century English theologian J.C. Ryle described it by saying that to be born again is, as it were, to enter upon a new existence. 
to have a new mind, a new heart, new views, new principles, new tastes, new affections, new likings, new dislikings, new fears, new joys, new sorrows, new love to things once hated, and new hatred to things once loved. For ancient Israel, it was a promise of a far-off day when God would renew and restore everything. And now, in Christ, that day is here. Paul says in verse 17, Behold, the new has come. His grace has been poured out, his people set free from bondage to sin, and their lives transformed and sent out for the sake of the gospel to those who don't know Christ yet. Paul says, All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Five times in four verses, Paul uses the word reconcile. That should set off alarm bells for us when we see that sort of repetition in a passage like this, to draw our attention. From this passage, we receive the doctrine of reconciliation, which teaches us that the gospel is relational. The word reconcile assumes the pre-existence of a relationship, but one that has been damaged. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians to describe the mending of a marriage relationship. Husband and wife who were married with vows of love and fidelity and kindness and devotion to one another need only reconcile if those vows have somehow been broken. The word reconcile makes an assumption that there is a relationship that already exists and that it's been damaged in some way. And the doctrine of reconciliation reminds us of that. When God created Adam and Eve, they entered into a relationship with God and with one another. But the vows of both of those relationships were broken when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, went their own way, and put themselves first. And so they were banished from God's presence, and their union with one another was compromised as well. Sin broke the vows that had united them with God and with one another and stained every generation that has come after them. So the doctrine of reconciliation teaches us that God makes things new, or rather, the doctrine of regeneration teaches us that God makes things new, and reconciliation teaches us that He draws us close, that He restores a relationship. In our relationship with God, reconciliation is the basis for adoption into God's household that Paul describes in Ephesians 1, peace with God that he writes about in many of his letters, Nearness to God that he writes about in Ephesians 2, and about uh, the, the abundant, overflowing joy in knowing God, which he describes in Romans 5. All this is from God and by grace. In every other religion, people must reconcile themselves to their God. They must labor and toil to serve the demands of what or who they worship so that they will not further drive themselves away or into ill will. In every other religion and every other worldview than the gospel, the burden of overcoming that distance is borne by us. Not so with the God of Scripture. He has reconciled his people to himself, Paul writes, not counting their sins or their trespasses against them. The verb that Paul uses here for counting sin means to calculate or to tally something. It's a sort of term that would have been used in ancient accounting or record-keeping of some sort. 
Paul is speaking here as if every person has a two-column ledger that records all the good deeds in their life and all the bad deeds in their life. But even our best deeds are still stained by sin and selfish motives. And the only good that people are actually able to do in the world apart from Christ is really the result of God's common grace at work in the world. So the column of good deeds is really empty. We know that. Scripture makes that clear. There's nothing, not a single tally in the good deeds column. But the other column, the column of of sin or transgression or trespass or uh, wickedness, that has a mark for every act of unrighteous anger or jealousy or lust or idolatry or greed or any other sinful impulse, that column is so filled with tally marks that the, the ledger page is hardly visible through all the ink. But, Paul says, God reconciles the world to himself by not counting that sin against his people. He wipes that ledger clean. Then, he sends those forgiven people out as ambassadors, Paul says in verse 20, making his appeal through those he has forgiven. Reconciliation is a, is a two-step process. First, he wipes the ledger clean. That's step one. And then, He sends out his people with the message of reconciliation. That is step two. Without both of those parts, the gospel doesn't function. Because if people are to be reconciled to God, they must hear the gospel and believe it. And to hear it, someone must share it with them. And that is why Paul tells the people of Corinth that he is imploring them to believe, pleading with them to be reconciled to God. Like many of you, Every month, Jessica and I make a mortgage payment. We write a check, put it in the mail, because we owe the bank a lot of money. And we are paying it off a little at a time, like so little at a time, it feels like it'll be forever. But imagine if the bank decided to wipe our debt off the books, just to go into the computer, put a zero, push enter, I'm assuming that's how easy that would be. <laughs> and just not count what we owe anymore. That would be amazing, right? That, that would be truly wonderful news if that was something they decided to do. But what if they never told us and we kept sending them a check every month? Even though our debt had been cleared off the board, nothing would change. Nothing would change for us. In love for us, God wipes the debt of our sin away. He wipes the ledger clean. And that forgiveness is free for all who will receive it. So he sends out ambassadors, those who know his grace and are called to represent him, to plead with debtors like they once were to receive the forgiveness that he has offered. So the doctrine of reconciliation has both a vertical and a horizontal effect. What I mean by that is that vertically, God draws us nearer to himself, reconciling a damaged relationship between people and their maker. And horizontally, he draws people closer together. He overcomes the barriers that once stood between people, uniting them under the lordship of Christ and his mercy and giving them common cause as his ambassadors in the world. These are wonderful Essential doctrines, regeneration and reconciliation. 
They are some of the mechanisms that make the gospel function. But they beg an important question. How is it that God can make new those who corrupted themselves by sin? How can God simply not count their transgressions against them? It's an important question, perhaps the most important question, though it often goes unasked. We sing about God's forgiveness. We rejoice in it. We, can, we, we affirm it. But often we don't stop to ask how it's possible. How is it that God can possibly be just while neglecting to answer sin? When a judge in a courtroom is presented with incontrovertible evidence and a guilty verdict from the jury, justice demands what comes next. When someone is proved to be guilty of a lifelong crime spree that includes heinous and terrible offenses, we expect a sentence to be handed down that corresponds to the severity of the crimes that have been carried out. Justice demands an answer to those crimes. Any judge who sat over that trial, the, the, the trial that convicted a, a, a person guilty of a lifelong crime spree, spree, and then on sentencing day said, well, these are serious, vicious things that you did, but you did do a few nice things along the way, so I'm going to let it slide this time. Any judge who sat over that trial and on sentencing day said that, would cause a riot from people who would be outraged at the injustice of refusing to answer the guilt of that person. But that is the scene that many of us imagine when we read Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.10, when he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That even though we are sinful, it's nothing too bad. We haven't done anything really bad. So he will say to us, I'm going to let it slide this time. But there are two problems with that assumption. The first is that God takes our sin more seriously than we do. Without question, God takes our sin more seriously than we do. Jesus told his disciples that unrighteous anger is tantamount to murder and lust is as serious as adultery. If we think that our sins are trivial or not that bad, we are in for a rude awakening. If we think that God is going to pin a ribbon on our chest for the lives that we lived or because we didn't do anything seriously wrong, we are going to be disappointed because God takes our sin more seriously than we do. Second, a judge who neglects to answer wrongdoing and guilt and law-breaking is not just, and God is always just. So how can it be that God can not count their trespasses, as Paul says? How can He show anyone mercy if He is truly holy and truly righteous and perfectly just? It would not be loving toward those who have been hurt by sin or in accordance with his own nature for him to ignore sin or to overlook it. Yet, the hope of all Scripture and all of redemptive history is that regeneration and reconciliation are possible. That God says to Adam and Eve that one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. 
that he promises to his people in Israel, as guilty as they were, that one day he would redeem and restore them to bring them home, that he would not forsake them but bring them instead into his very presence, that he will one day make a new heavens and a new earth in which his people will live in righteousness. How can he make that promise? God must answer sin. He's just, so he cannot simply overlook it or pretend that it isn't there. The answer is here, in the last verse of 2 Corinthians 5, which gives us the doctrine of imputation. For our sake, Paul says, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God does not ignore sin, and He shows mercy to His people. Both of these things are true, and that's only possible because the judge has stepped out from behind the bench. He has crossed the courtroom and taken the place of the defendant. This verse 2 Corinthians 5.21 is so important because it explains that Jesus came to live a perfect life, to know no sin, so that it could be exchanged for ours. That is why He was born in the flesh, why He lived in this world. He grew up, endured adolescence, He learned a trade, He had friends and a family, He was tempted in the desert, and all of this was so that He would be fully human, completely one of us in every way except that he lived perfectly, faithful to his Father in every single way. We may wonder why God couldn't just forgive sin, just forgive and forget, move on. Why send Jesus? How does that change anything? But it had to be this way, so that the perfect life of Jesus was there to be counted ours. So that when God looks on us, he would see the perfect spotless obedience of His Son. At the same time, Paul says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin. As Christ's perfect life is counted ours, our imperfect, sinful, rebellious lives are counted His. And that is why He went to the cross, why He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, He took upon Himself the full measure of God's wrath against our sin. In saying He made Him to be sin, Paul isn't suggesting that Christ Himself actually sinned at some point in His life, that He transgressed or was unfaithful to His Father at some point in His life, but that our guilt was imputed to Him, accredited to Him, so that He became our substitute. Like the judge walking across the courtroom to sit in the seat of the defendant, exchanging their lives in order to receive the sentence that is demanded by justice. That is imputation. And it's because of imputation that we are counted righteous before God. Not because of anything we've done, not because we lived a perfect life or managed to avoid doing anything seriously bad, but because of Christ whose righteousness is accredited to us by His grace and by faith alone. God leaves no sin unanswered, no wickedness unpunished. And for those who look to Him in faith, that just answer to wickedness and sin is poured out on Christ 
who takes upon himself the guilt of his people. God is just, and perfectly so. And when he shows grace, it is not by ignoring or overlooking or trivializing sin. It is by facing it in all of its ugliness and unleashing his fury against every hateful, unrighteous, prideful deed carried out in the history of mankind. For centuries, the sacrificial system of temple worship in Israel anticipated this moment, the moment of imputation. God had instructed his people to shed the blood of various animals so that their own own blood would be spared for their acts of sin. But that blood never had the power to save. The author of Hebrews puts it plainly when he says in chapter 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The whole sacrificial system was designed by God to prepare the world to receive by faith the perfect, once-for-all-time, substitutionary sacrifice promised in Isaiah 53, where we read that the Savior was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, that upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace with God, and with His wounds we were healed, because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every single one of us to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the promise of God's mercy, and the doctrine of imputation helps us understand how it's possible. This passage from 2 Corinthians helps us get under the hood of the gospel. It declares that God is both just and merciful, and though these things seem to contradict one another, because after all, it, is a, it defies logic for someone to be both just and merciful in the face of wickedness and transgression, it pushes us to ask, how can a judge who overlooks evil or shows mercy to sinners be just? But it reminds us that he steps into our place and receives for us the answer to our sin. That is how guilty people are reconciled to a holy God and to one another. And it is on that basis that we are made new, set free from bondage to sin and made into the righteous people that God calls us to be. Not because of merit on our part, not because we have reconciled ourselves to God by sheer force of will or good behavior. It is through the willingness of Christ to exchange His life for ours that His righteousness might be counted ours. Years ago, I remember hearing Don Carson, a theologian, professor, give an illustration about depth of faith. I'm paraphrasing the illustration, but it was something like this. He told a story about two Hebrews on the night of the first Passover in Egypt, when God had said that he would pass through the land of Egypt and strike down the firstborn of every house that was not marked by the blood of the Passover lamb on its door. The two men are talking together that night. One of them says to the other, well, this is pretty frightening, knowing that God is going to pass through the land in judgment tonight. The second man says, well, you've followed all of God's instruction, right? You've eaten the meal. You've marked your doorposts with the blood. The first man says, yes, I've done all that we were commanded to do, but I'm still frightened. During the night, God sweeps through the land, and in the morning, both of these men and their families were safe because it wasn't the depth of their faith 
It wasn't the strength of their faith that saved them. It was the object of their faith that saved them. That is the truth by God's grace, that it is not the strength of our faith or the depth of our faith, knowing lots of theological jargon in terms like regeneration and imputation. That is not what saves us. It is the object of our faith that saves us, and his name is Jesus. So though we might be trembling with doubt and absolutely full of questions that we cannot fathom the answers to, filled with shame perhaps for guilt that, that we cannot overcome sin and our lives, or confronted with the brokenness of this world that causes us to suffer and makes us to wonder whether or not God's love is real, God says to us in those moments and every day, all you must do is trust me, and all you must know is that I love you. But the doctrines of regeneration, reconciliation, and imputation help us do that. They give strength to our weak hands so that we will cling to Christ more fiercely and with more joy. To sleep more easily on the night of the first Passover, when we might otherwise have had restless sleep and been afraid, they help us to rest in the love of Christ for us. It's true that there is no theology exam at the gate of heaven. No one will ask you to define complex theological terms or to illustrate how certain doctrines contribute to the efficacy of the gospel. But digging deeper into the gospel casts out fears. It calms our anxieties and reminds us of the truth when we take the time and the effort to dig into these things, we are rewarded with comfort and encouragement and joy that come with what they teach us. Like my old Jeep, the more we get our hands dirty with the gospel, the more we will love it. When we get under the hood and see God's grace more clearly, know His love more deeply, and treasure the gospel more sincerely, when we spend time searching the Scriptures and thinking deeply about what we find there, honoring God with not only our heart and our soul, but with our minds, we will come out on the other side more captivated by Christ and more thrilled by the hope of the gospel. It seems like that is why Paul wrote these lines to the Corinthians. He wanted them and even implored them to go further, to think more deeply, and as a result, to cling to Christ more fiercely. I pray that we hear these words and join that pursuit. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning as we consider these weighty doctrinal concepts, we pray that they would only be a means to see you more clearly, to understand the gospel more deeply, and to have more joy in your grace and love for us. We rejoice this morning in remembering that we have been loved by Christ, but not because of our merit, that we stood guilty, condemned, and in the shame of our sin. Yet, Christ has taken our place and taken upon himself our guilt so that we can be counted righteous. Bring this truth and the hope that it represents to bear on our lives this morning by your Spirit. Cause us to rejoice in your regenerating, reconciling work.
We ask these things, Lord, in the name of your Son. Amen.